a good evening as we are here in late July in the Philadelphia area. And welcome to Colton's Court. I am your host, Gerald Colton. Court is in session along with my co-host, six-time first-team pro bowler, four-time first-team all-pro, one-time second, 11 years with the New Orleans Saints, including Super Bowl, 44 as final year with the Green Bay Packers. Hello, Jerry Evans. What's going on, man? How's, oh. your, how's it going? We got a lot to talk about today, I can see. We got fired up before <laughs> the show, so we're going to start in a little different way. Yeah. Here on Colton's Court, we deal with sports issues mostly and entertainment. Uh, sometimes creeps in and we cross over a little to political in the world and, and stuff like that. Ja, as we are here in late July... Tonight, and one of the things that I love about how sports brings things together in the stadium where the Philadelphia Eagles will take the field shortly for two exhibitions games and then in September for a season that people in Philadelphia are excited for and hoping will be their second Super Bowl run in, in three years. Yeah. In that same stadium, in a few hours, what I believe is the quintessential rock star of all time and his band, the Rolling Stones, will take the stage, and that is Mick Jagger performing. One at least one last time, and um, a, a career that has spanned from the '60s, well over 50-year career. These guys have had. I guess we're, we're probably going close to 60 years. And I really believe Mick Jagger is the quintessential rock star of all time, and he'll be on. And this is where some of the value comes in when they're rating teams is when you own your own stadium it is so much more valuable and the Eagles being able to host the Rolling Stones right. and make money on right. that concert as yeah. partners in this concert <clears throat> really adds to the revenue that the team brings in. Huge concert huge band you know huge uh, members of the band and you're absolutely right I, I think that separates the owners that actually own, own the building and, and not just rent the building um, but yeah yeah uh, I agree with you. I'm, I won't be going to the concert, but I'm pretty sure I'll, I'll hear a lot from it. <laughs> Being well, close right down the street. so Well, we got a little heated right before the show. Because, we did. Because, we did. Because one of the things is, you know, music doesn't have wins and losses that we have in sports and statistics. Gerald, don't that, upset our listeners now. That can support. No, listen, I love our listeners, but we all have different tastes sometimes. <laughs> and I personally, in, in the rock world, and, and we're, we're, we're going by different genres, I believe that Mick Jagger is the greatest rock star of all time. I'm not going to tell you that I necessarily feel the Rolling Stones music is the best, although I think their body of work over these almost six decades is incredible and the right. fact that they're still doing it and they're in their 70s and they're going to be dancing and doing the Mick Jagger moves um, in There's no retirement in music and, it lasts and, forever and Keith Richards who has survived an unbelievable uh, lifestyle and amount yeah. of drugs through the 60s and <laughs> 70s is still doing it also in his 70s is still a great great guitar player and it's, a, it's just a, a band that has endured and I just think if you ever t- if I had to name one rock star who embodies the history of rock and roll I would pick Mick Jagger your thoughts? Uh, I, I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm a big rock and roll listener. I think rock has changed over the years as far as generations and stuff like that. And it, it has evolved in, into, you know, other genres of music and style and stuff. But definitely that band is definitely one of the top bands. Um, I'm not going to sit here and act like I listen to a lot of them, a lot of them. But uh, I'm a more of a hip hop guy. Um, you know, so so your biggest star of all time? My biggest star of all time. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Michael Jackson is up there with me, for sure. Well, Prince listen, is Jack, up there. I mean, Jack, it's, it's a lot of people. I gotta give you that Michael Jackson would be named by most people as the number one pop star of all time. I think right. that's his category. And there's no arguing about the star power of Michael Jackson. <clears throat> yeah. Um, when we get into whose music is best, <laughs> there comes a debate. Yeah, as you said earlier, it depends on what you like. You know what I'm saying? What you like to listen to and, and things of that nature. Uh, riding around with my 15-year-old son, I'm not listening to a lot of stuff I, I was listening to over a year and a half what ago. What are we listening so. to? Are you in the Barney world yet? This <laughs> is <laughs> a... Like jazz and symphony music and classical music and stuff like that. Oh, but uh, we are educated him. Yeah, a little bit. You know, it's uh, also supposed to be good for your brain development. Definitely can't listen to the rappers nowadays. My sister used all to play Mozart stuff. and that stuff for yeah. for her kids, and they both became valedictorians and uh, doctors and lawyers. So um, I guess there may be something to it. I think string music and, and live music definitely does different sends different wavelengths through the brain as as, as uh, other instruments and music does especially um <clears throat> drums and the beats and stuff like that but but yeah i mean i think you're right i mean they're definitely one of the top bands i think there's a lot of artists out there that old school artists that uh have put out a lot of music also but um yeah i think you're going to enjoy that concert well, i know you are well listen it's an amazing thing in music how the career can go on 
if not forever, certainly almost for as long as you live. Long I time. Mean, Tom Petty passed away a couple of years ago, and he ended his reti- his farewell tour literally right before he died. Right. Um, and there are a number of acts that I've seen just this summer of guys that are now in their 70s, for crying out loud. So it is amazing. I saw Earth, Wind & Fire a few weeks ago. Those guys are still kicking it like they did in the late 60s or early yeah. 70s when they first started. And it is unbelievable how good and how fresh these musicians can sound forever. And, um, you know, you know as an athlete that you had this, what I believe is a Hall of Fame career. And after a dozen years, that was all over and on to the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, for musicians, they can keep going. Keep going, take a break, come back. You know, it's, it's a long Long career as long as you're talented and good at it and when you like their music you never stop liking their right music. you never st- exactly you listen like you still listen to stuff from back in the 60s and 70s or, Lionel Richie was just down at uh, Hard Rock last Hard Rock, week right. and, and, and I still love listening to Lionel Richie and you know if I caught him once a year I'd never get tired of the show no you're right and that's and that's the beauty of music uh I've, I've always been a fan of music. Uh, I just didn't. My vocals just didn't stay with me <laughs> like well, they were when I, I was younger. This, but though. in your family, there is quite a bit of musical talent, and your yeah. sister Carmel even sang the national anthem down in New Orleans during before one yeah. of your games and uh, has performed. And I, I hear all your family members sing, and it's you yeah, got she, some good genes there. So you can sing, but it's tough competition <laughs> even in your own household. Yeah, no, I'm definitely not tops in that. Uh, my mom and my sister, and even. My nephew, who was on the American Boys Choir School, traveled the world for four JJ, years. JJ, your, your nephew attorney can yeah. sing. He can sing. Well, he used to. I don't know if he can anymore. No, but. I've heard him sing a little bit. He, he can still do it to, to charm the ladies when he wants to. But anyway, I, I just want to, again, reference it in sports because the Philadelphia Eagles really derive great benefit from the concert tonight and yeah. all summer long the Wells Fargo's packed for different things. They J Lo the other night. I think yep. they had John Mayer last night. And even though the Flyers did not go very deep. Comcast, who owns, they didn't even make the playoffs, but Comcast, who owns the Flyers and the Wells Fargo Center, derived tons of income from that stuff. So yeah. owning your own stadium is such an important part of the formula as to the profitability and success of your sports franchise because it just adds to that revenue. And you get to, to really supplement it, even though the building would have been dark since the Flyers were eliminated in late April. Right. Well, they're not playing in the link, right? They're playing in the uh, Wells Fargo. Tonight, the Rolling Stones will play the link. And that's one, oh, of, the wow. things, one of the things that. That's way more seen than the Wells Fargo. Yeah, they 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 don't necessarily. I mean, they're blocks the a lot. Yeah. I think they block off the part behind the stage, but it's at least fifty plus thousand in the place. And I have never particularly thought that these great outdoor concerts are the are the be all end all because I personally like a more intimate setting to watch musical artists. Mm-hmm. I love the small. We have the Met just opened here in Philadelphia, right? Which is yeah, incredible. Met, yeah. And we have the Fillmore. I've yeah. always loved shows at the TLA, um, and we've got just a bunch of theaters around here that are really really nice. Yeah. Have some outside ones too, but um, but then but then they they do each summer. Billy Joel always plays over at Citizens Bank Park. This year, they had somebody else with him. I don't know. We've had Paul McCartney through the years, and and there's just a number. Of I know Jay Z and Beyonce were here last year. Yep, they, last they, year. They, yeah, I went to here. that concert. That was good. And, and what you get to do in those stadiums is put so many more bodies in the place. Yeah. And there's, to me, very few people who can really captivate the and, and command that big an arena, that big a stage. And the Stones and Mick Jagger are one of them. Jay-Z and Beyonce certainly do it. Well. And the comedians also. I think Kevin Hart performed there. Kevin Hart's the only guy ever. To perform in the link, right? Ever As a comedian. to play that kind of stage. Yeah. He really wanted to. It was a big thing for him to play that kind of crowd. And he, he performed as a comedian to 55,000 people, which is outrageous. Right, right. Which is, I was. I went to one of his uh, earlier shows down in New Orleans at um, University of New Orleans, and it was inside at, at their theater inside, but it wasn't nowhere near that many people. I mean, that was, what, five, six, seven years ago. Listen, that's a died-in-wolf Philadelphian who has twice in a row, both for the Eagles Super Bowl and then the following year for New England, gotten kicked off trying to get on the stage where the Super Bowl Lombardi trophy was being presented, <laughs> presented by being too drunk at the end of the game. Right. It was actually a classic video at the end of Super Bowl 52 when the Eagles won. He did it again last year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's, he's a funny little guy. But, uh, but no, I think you're exactly right when you're talking about the revenue. Why, and that's why they're building these stadiums that can do more than just house games, especially football games. You see Jerry Jones who did it. He has boxing. He has, he has a political convention down there. So right? much stuff in that stadium just and that's how he designed it. I was just in Vegas this past weekend. I'm pretty sure that that stadium is going to be designed. I saw some specs yep. of it. It looks freaking amazing, by the way. The stadium's going up very nicely. And the Raiders will be playing there in a couple of years. Right, and they're going to be doing a whole lot of things. I mean, they still got things on the strip, but I'm pretty sure that they're going to you know, maneuver it in a way where it can definitely house a, you know, a few other things 
that uh, that are coming to Vegas, and and uh, and that's what you want. You know, in New Orleans, in the Dome, they always have the Super Bowl there. Maybe every four years, they have the Final Four in, in college basketball there. They outfit it for that. So, and even during Mardi Gras, they outfit it for the end of Mardi Gras for when the floats come in. You know, so and um, <clears throat> you know for a lot of things down there. So, I mean, you definitely get your most out of the venue when you're able to do multiple things and not just host basketball, football, hockey games. You know, when you mentioned the, the Superdome, and the Superdome became really a saving place for so many people during Hurricane Katrina. It housed so many people. They, they transcended a sports arena into something that became a structure of safety and yeah. and uh, defense and whatever, it, it shelter. Um, and, and we almost had a tragedy down in New Orleans again, and they averted it. The, the storms were pretty scary because all the levee system that was put in and updated after the disaster in 2005 of Hurricane Katrina was seriously tested and fortunately held up, and we didn't have any kind of disaster down there in your area. That You were there as it got rebuilt, and you were part of the rebuild by the New Orleans Saints returning to the Superdome in 2006. Just talk for a second about what it meant to be part of that uprising in New Orleans. And then as you take that with you in your heart going forward, you know, what, what you felt as you watched storms, you know, descending upon New Orleans last week. Yeah, uh, um, you know, Mother Nature is very unpredictable. We, we, we try with all the technology we have. I think we're getting better at it, but it's, it's still very unpredictable and, 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 and in a lot of ways unstoppable. Uh, you know, that whole experience from 06 to 2016 for 11 years was great. We were able to win a lot of games. We were able to give the fans and the community and and um, the region a reason to really get behind their team. Not saying that they weren't before, but you know, not like that. Not like that. I mean, the Dome Patrol was was pretty significant. They were they were winning a lot of games, but they were playing in the NFC West where they had to go through the Niners every year. And we know how good they were. So we were giving them excitement, get putting up points. Defense was playing well, and we were able to win a Super Bowl you know, the first one, and give them something they never experienced, which was amazing. Um, but, yeah, I always, uh, you know, when I talk to people down there, some people tell me, you know, it's a different style of living. So, they, so a lot of people down there live and say, hey, I don't know if I'm going to lose everything this year during hurricane season. Or, you know, they, it, sometimes it's really a year to year. And uh, I think some people have left and, and come back, and some people have left and, and, and stayed where they left to and well, you just know. visit back. But that's that's the mentality down there sometimes is, is that, you know, it, this hurricane season could be the worst or and we could lose everything. And, and you saw it a couple, you know, years ago back with uh, Hurricane Katrina and a couple other hurricanes that have come not as bad as Katrina but have still left people you know, homeless and without a home sometimes. So it's, uh, it's, it's very dangerous during that hurricane season down there and it's a lot of water and um, – and New Orleans is a bowl, you know. It's really a bowl, and it's in this, you know, below sea level. And lot, there's some in places in, in that area, as you know, that never really came back after Katrina. Um, yeah. So some people did leave and never return. Houston and Atlanta yeah. got a big influx <clears throat> of people, but um, certainly New Orleans is vibrant and, and really did rally in a big way. And, oh yeah, and, the people and, are awesome, and and they and they love it. They they don't complain about it. They don't sit here and. And, you know, talk bad about it or this, that, and the third. It's just something that they've always experienced. Like, they've always grew up knowing that this is where we live and, and how we live and this is what, what can happen. And um, the Saints, though, as I referenced before, were such a part of the resurgence and, and almost represented the rise of the city because the Saints had really throughout history stunk. They were became a team in 1969, 1968, 1969, and um, had never had success. They made the playoffs only a couple of times before 67. you arrived. <laughs> and before you arrived, yeah. and along with you came a guy named Drew Brees, right. and a guy named Sean Payton decided to follow you guys. Yeah, they all followed me there. You know, they came because <laughs> the guy out of Bloomsburg was coming, and they were yeah, like, I mean, yeah, that was a draw. let's go do it. But, but you all arrived at the same time, and you were with your whole draft class, and had the golden era of New Orleans Saints football, which actually hasn't even ended yet, and that's because because Sean and Drew and Drew still there, yeah. Still going strong, <laughs> yeah, man. And they've done some really good stuff about adding around them and, and replacing. It's somehow surviving the replacement of you, but and um, Pete's there. A lot of coaches staff. A few coaches are there. A few coaches have come back. Pete Carmichael has been there for the last thirteen years. So, but, so. but that resurrection really rose the city and yeah. rallied the city and that whole geographic region. And it's um, one of the many great things about sports. Yeah, and that, that's what happens. Um, you get like-minded people together, and you're able to retain them and keep. 
keep them and you can do something special. I mean, you see it on other teams also. But, uh, but yeah, football season's coming around. We were just reading off the top teams, and it's going to be an exciting year. I was hanging out with some of those guys a little while ago, and, and they're excited. The whole city's excited. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a good season. The NFC is going to be nice. Ja, I've had the privilege of being on the sideline for a bunch of NFL games. They don't make it as easy as it used to. I used to be able to sneak on there a lot easier than it was, <laughs> <laughs> than I was lately. They, you could get a media pass and kind of get out there. The NFL yeah. supervises the sidelines a lot yeah, more. a little now. tight. But in 2006, opening night against Atlanta at the Dome on Monday Night Football, yeah. your first game back in New Orleans, the season before they played half their games in San Antonio, and they, uh, they were— In the Alamo Dome yeah, for a little bit. Because, because they had no home. They were yeah. abandoned. As I said, the Superdome was being used as a shelter— and, and New Orleans was in disaster area for, for many months after Hurricane Katrina, which happened right before the season. But there against Atlanta, you Atlanta received the kickoff. This is your first game as an NFL player, right. and your defense holds on three, and then you block that punt. And I have <laughs> never in my life experienced the noise and the excitement that was surrounding that block punt and the touchdown game. Just, just describe what it felt like. You are a rookie out of Bloomsburg, um, a packed house in Division II football, and, and your PSAC is very good, but you're talking a few thousand people. People right. in, 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 yeah, you know, yeah. in what are not even as big as high school stadiums in Texas. Oh, you're right. And Some here of the you five are. 5A, 6A stadiums, yeah. In almost 80,000 people in the New Orleans Superdome, as yeah. definitely as it can ever be. What did that feel like for a rookie named Jerry Evans? I mean, that felt amazing. Uh, at that point, you know, I was a rookie, but I was starting all preseason, started the first two games of the season, and we were just happy just to be home. Um, but, um, but, yeah, it was amazing. It, it was – I say this all the time because this is the truth. You, we knew that that punt was going to be blocked. We knew that Steve Gleason was going to block that punt. It was designed by our special team coach, uh, Bon. Uh, I think Bono. He, he designed that play to work. Bono, the star of you, the front man for you too. Yeah, yeah, that Bono. <laughs> I stay with a rock and roll. Theme. Yeah, I know. I was at that concert. That was a good one too. But uh, but yeah, no. Uh, and we knew that he was going to block it. We we had the perfect scheme set up. The guy who occupied the center, I can't remember who it was, did his did his job. Gleason came around, blocked it. Curtis Deloach picked it up and scored. And and it just the roof just went off. But it us as players, we saw that play executed all week long. Because as rookies, I'm not on the punt return, kick return, none of those teams. Just on the field goal pro. But as a rookie, you have to sit in all those meetings. So my whole rookie year, I sat in all the special teams meetings. And just seeing that design for that for that particular play to work and actually watching it being executed, it, it's, it's like it's like a perfect picture. Yeah, I can't <laughs> you know imagine what I mean? as a coach against that team on your first on your first game back in the dome. It was it was amazing. And there was no looking back for that team. No. It, 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 the momentum you took, you took it through that game, yeah. through the whole season, and wound up in the NFC Championship team game for a team that had never half had away any from the Super Bowl, yeah. and then ultimately three years later winning the Super Bowl. Right. But for credibility purposes, when the coaches go through all this stuff for the nonstop yeah. meetings, and you're even there in the meetings that you're not even really a part of or right. don't have to, don't affect you, the credibility of the coaches to come through and have a scheme and it to work like that has to really raise the confidence of the team around them. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, it's a lot of some people don't believe in the coach, they don't believe in the scheme, they don't think they do anything. That, you know, because the players out there are doing it, but. That was a situation very early for me in my career where I could see <clears throat> where the classroom could immediately, you know, make – could immediately, if you pay attention and you do what was right and, and, you, and, you, and you buy into it and you, and you watch and you study and you execute it, you can immediately take what you're doing from the classroom to the field and, and, and have success and execute it. Now, that, that, that doesn't always happen. No, it didn't happen in our room. And, we, and I've had coaches that have been head coaches since leaving our room. It doesn't always happen, but just to see that happen and to see that put in place and the process of it and, and how we were, you know, really – because the bottom line is no matter what, if you don't go into a situation or into a play or in, into a game plan with the utmost confidence and you're going out there and giving your all 110%, you're not going to execute it anyway. You might survive the play. You might survive the day. But you're not gonna you're not gonna execute at optimal level, you know, more than you know as you're supposed to be because you just don't you just don't your heart's not in it you don't believe in it you're not giving your all to it that's what anything so to actually see that happen out that way and and, and the guys really 
buy into it and and then go out there and execute it. And that, but that's the kind of player Gleason was too. Like Gleason was a guy like you. You give him a job, you give him a task. He's not going to cut corners. Before we turn to modern day sports that I want to talk about, and we talk about every week on the show, and we start a little differently here today. Um, let's talk about Steve Gleason for a second. The guy who blocked that punt has become. Um, synonymous also with surviving and with toughness and some of the hardships that may be endured from the game, but but really being um, somewhat who can rally people around him and I think you can look to for motivation and inspiration. Talk about Steve Gleason for a second, what he's gone through post-NFL career. Uh, yeah, Gleason was a, was a great player for us. He was a great athlete, great person, great family, and um, you know, post-career he developed ALS, and, and he's still... He, he he's still here with us. He's, he has survived. He, yeah, it's a five year cycle. He's probably closing in on ten years now. Yeah, he, he actually uh, I forget the name of the mountain that they climbed. Him and Scott Fujita yeah. and 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 his and his family with them and his team with them. You know, climbed him out. I can't remember Everest. One of those, maybe Everest. He it was no, it wasn't Everest. It okay. wasn't a cold one. It was um, I can't think of it. But um, they're all cold at the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, just just the way he persevered, you know, is still persevering, and and what he's doing, you know, for that cause, and it's um it's it's humbling. But to know that you played with that guy, you shared the locker room with that guy, um, you know what type of guy he was before <clears throat> his condition, and um, he's still showing that same that same fight. You know, the irony is, and it's it's re- it was really tragic. But as we know, we got into the. Uh, Whatever they call it. What they call the gate. What was the New Orleans gate? Uh, the New Orleans gate. Well, when, when Williams and Peyton and Mickey Loomis all got suspended. Oh, the bounty uh, gate? The bounty gate was <laughs> the bounty <yours>. gate. <laughs> <laughs> Spy gate was the sa- the The Patriots least penalized the defense gate. in the league that year, but you had a bounty out. Yeah, the so, bounty gate, yeah. So, um, and by the way, it was uh, the Sanctuary Lodge on Machu Picchu. Was Machu what, Picchu, Machu yes. Picchu was Machu what he Picchu. climbed. And yeah. Just an incredible accomplishment. And it was yeah. also Scott Fajita, one of your former teammates, and his teammate, the linebacker, made their climb with him, and they all yes. supported him and helped him along the way. And that's, that's a lot of love um, and support. But when... Gleason was doing sort of a documentary, a story of his life, and something he wanted to leave to his son, and the Saints gave him full access, which included meetings that normally you don't, and, and yeah. he had a filmmaker do it. To me, one of the saddest parts ever was that that filmmaker then turned in Greg Williams in what was a private closed-door speech, and right. then led to suspensions that cost Greg Williams his job with the Saints— Sean Payton, a long time, I guess, a season with the Saints coaching, your general manager, half a season. And it was really, to me, such a shame that it was all done out of the goodness to help Gleason and a filmmaker who really did not understand the privacy that goes on in the sacred yeah. world that he was in. And he exposed it and uh, well, made Williams look like he was talking something that was really in-house and not intended to be heard by the public. It's very, it's very unfortunate. And... You know, in my belief, I think he knew what he was doing, and he and he did it. And it was very unfortunate that he did that way. But um, but us as players know exactly what went on. We 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 know how we played the game, and, and and the bottom line is we were the best team, and nobody could stop us no matter what. So it just sucked that yes, it what really sucked for us is that we had a legitimate chance to win it that year and be the only team to actually play the Super Bowl in our home stadium and they suspended our and they suspended our coaching staff like that that's what really really sucked for us um, you know that opportunity that we kind of missed because we were down three, four coaches, head guys. You know, there's, there's for that so season. much. There's so much said behind closed doors and locker rooms. It really, if the public heard, would misinterpret, and that being part of it. And it just, you know, things such as William oh, saying in sure. a motivational speech. You know, in all take, sports, take out the head and you'll get the body. In the body follows and all that stuff. He didn't mean it directly. In and all sports, it's exactly. a violent sport that was that was <clears throat> created by ex-military guys, like. It's a violent sport. It's one of the violent sports that we have outside of, you know, hand-to-hand combat. You know what I'm saying? Like full combat sports. But it's it's a violent sport. Yeah, you're hitting with your head and you have this equipment on and you got guys who are running – 15 to 20 miles an hour. Like. I always felt so badly for Steve Gleason, who everything he did was really out of his goodness of his heart and was suffering this horrible, horrible disease as a man in his 30s, confined to a wheelchair, couldn't even talk, could only point with his eyes to speak. And the guy that he trusted yeah. really blew the, the top off something that should have never been blown off. And Anyway, but 
we love Steve Gleason, respect him so much, and wish that he continues to be able to do what he does, which has already outlived what he was supposed to do by quite some and, and right. made such a contribution and a difference in people's lives. Um, ja, we are here, as we mentioned at the start of the show, in late July, and this is an exciting week for NFL fans, maybe more so than NFL players, but it is the start of training camp. Yeah. The Philadelphia Eagles report today, uh, across the, tomorrow morning, rather, across the river in Philadelphia, and a lot of the teams have already reported, but everyone's going to report by the end of this week. Talk to me about what this would have felt like for you just a few years ago, reporting to the NFL camp. And take us through that process in that week. I wouldn't be here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it's exciting. Um, <clears throat> you really got your training in. Normally, I would take a couple of days off because Coach Payton always had a strength condition. I mean, a conditioning test. So just uh, preparing for that. But um, what would you take with you? What would I take with me? What do you bring to clothes wise? One bag of. Pretty much nothing. Well, you're living in shorts and T-shirts that are team-issued, right? So you're just living in in the garb from the team. Right. You're not going out and being fancy. You may take – you take one suit for travel, uh – Maybe like one pair of pants to get dressed or whatever, but it also depends on what climate you're in. But you're really not taking much. You're taking comfort clothes and then a suit for travel for business. But other than that, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy. PlayStation or game or something. But one of the great travel guys in the NFL was a guy named Coy Detmer, backup quarterback for the Eagles, who I got to know well because he was David. He just took a toothbrush or something, right? (laughs) He didn't even pack. He just he he would wear because they didn't require a suit, so he had this travel outfit, and he would wear it on the plane both ways um, and yeah. he brought like literally just a toothbrush with him and he would not even pack I always took so much stuff and did never use it like it would be like oh I got all this stuff and it's like dang I never even used this stuff so well what did you bring to training camp did you bring video games did you bring anything no, with you well early on I did bring maybe a Playstation or something video games but now you know you have so much stuff on your iPads and your phones I don't really take anything of that basically just clothes maybe snacks or something but just really close. I mean, <laughs> the crazy thing about training camp, well, when I first got in the league, there were two days and things like that. Now it's not. You have and, a, and then the collective bargaining agreement eliminated that as right. well as some tragedies around the league. Yeah. I mean, you just have a little more downtime now, but the coaches are finding a way to eat up all your downtime. So you don't really – by the time you get time to relax and collect your thoughts, it's time to go to sleep. Like, you're really more, just sleeping. Is it more mentally or physically fatiguing or both? It's both. For sure, but uh, and 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 what are the accommodations like? Where are you staying now? Is now is less uh, physical because you don't have the two a day practices you have to walk through. But um, but you said it, and it depends on where you're staying. I mean, I've stayed in dorms, I've stayed in hotels. So you at the start of your career you used to train in Mississippi. You stayed in Mississippi right? in the dorms at Millsaps, and and so and, you, school. and you would have a roommate, right? Had a roommate, yeah. Rookie year had a roommate. Didn't have a roommate past rookie year, but <clears throat> rookie year had a roommate. Yep. Which, as a man, you don't necessarily want to come back to a room with a roommate, right? <laughs> yeah, but our our room was different. So like our room was, we didn't share the same room. We just shared the same bathroom. So it was sort of a suite, right? Okay. It was kind of like you know one guy here, and then across from you there's the other guy. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, it's not like our two bedroom suites in Vegas. No, it's not. <laughs> our our two bedroom suites. I never shared a room with you. <laughs> but no, it's it's not. Yeah, it's not like a twin bed. No. Now and, now, hotel rooms there are for for some guys if you're in the hotel room for training camp. So like, but at Millsaps we didn't. We had enough rooms that I don't think we needed to put guys in the room. Way to splurge Saints and give all these grown <laughs> men their room. Also, though, you guys used to talk about you and Carl Nixon bunch when I would be around you. You would talk about some of the stories of training camp in Mississippi. How hot was it? Hot. Too hot to practice. <laughs> Shouldn't have been out there, you know, compared to the rules. But if that was the case, he wouldn't have been out there none of the time. I think it <laughs> rained once in three years, maybe twice. But uh, it was hot, man. I mean, it was times where you just – I'm asking, like, how hot is it today? Ah, oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. <laughs> I know you got the thermometer right around your neck. Tell me how hot it is. They, oh, no, don't worry about that. But, uh, you know, each year it got better. Coach Payton implemented cool stations and different things because it was hot for them too. But uh, Mississippi was, was, was definitely hot. And that first year we were in training – the longest training camp in NFL history. I think it was like eight weeks because <laughs> we did – that's why we had two away games. We didn't play the third game, home game, until we were, uh, you know, game three. So we had – we played a preseason game over there. My first preseason game was right there at Jackson State University across the street. 
which if you looked over there, it looked like it was a the stadium was on a grill. You could see the heat wave just in between it. I'm telling you, it was hot. But, you know, we made it. Some people quit. <laughs> you know, it, it, you you came into the league in 2006. In 2001, because I don't want to just make light of that heat, because they really did try to break in. The NFL was all about, you know, macho-ness and oh, things yeah. like that. It still is to a large extent. And we had those coaches from those kind of, you know, that left those kind of systems. But in 2001, an all-pro tackle for the Minnesota Vikings named Corey Stringer yes. literally died at training camp and uh, from heat stroke. His body overheated. He was a man about your size. And his internal organs actually got to such a high level level, his, his temperature was somewhere between 106 and 108, yeah. that his internal organs actually melted. And it was an absolute tragedy. It's to this day, just mentioning it to you, I, I'm, I feel physical cringing at the thought and the, and the horror of this elite, yeah. all-pro athlete having this horrible demise. And, um, and I'm surprised in 2006 you were still going through that kind of treatment at training camp. Fortunately, it doesn't go that, that hard anymore. Right. I mean, that's where they have the, the different protocols in place to to uh to try to avoid those things from happening but um unfortunately you know we're we're still we're still losing guys in that aspect just like the young kid from Maryland last year you know you're same still, thing same you're thing you're losing guys to overheating and things of that nature and <clears throat> and uh you, you scratch your head is you know you're it's like okay it is it, is I always say coaching is one of the one of the most difficult um things to do with young adults, especially in football, because you're dealing with so many, you know, players. Like you have fifty to sixty to seventy players. So you really it, you really have to treat each one differently because they are. You know, basketball, baseball, you don't have that many players. But with football you have so many players and, and it's so vital to really try to have the other coaches you know, police their guys, learn their guys, have signs that, that, that give red flags and see different things so you, they can make judgment calls. Sure, and you big guys are just more susceptible by the right. nature of your body building the strain on your heart, <clears throat> and um, and they don't yeah. always treat you differently. Yeah, it's tough, and, and, and that's why sometimes it's, you kind of don't like it when the fans are like, oh, the training camp is, 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 is a cakewalk. That's why they're soft. not playing. You're they're soft. good. It's like, <laughs> okay, you try to run around with 30 pounds of equipment on, and in 110 degrees <laughs> with the humidity like this. And, you know, I'm in one training camp, one day, one day training camp in Mississippi. I lost 13 pounds. Man. 13 that's, pounds. That's just an incredible amount of just liquid. Just liquid. And, and, and did you take. And that was two a day. Did you take IVs to replenish that? Because it no. gets dangerous. No. See, I learned my lesson very early in New Orleans in OTAs and before training camp. The, the lesson was full lower body lockup, both quads, both hamstrings. Calves, which felt is like painful, my muscles, was, unbelievable. Felt like my whole lower body was just going to rip apart, like literally. And that stays with you for a few days too, because it's like bruising to your body. I was like, I never want that to happen again. So I was just super hydrated all the time, and that could be why I didn't have a lot of injuries too. I was just always super hydrated, even overly hydrate, even overhydrate. You know, just because I, I'm a big guy and I sweat a lot, I just always have been. So all my big guy friends do. It's just, <laughs> but that's yeah, your body type. Because. And it, but it's but it's hard. It's it's hard to really put that back in. Um, I didn't really like doing IVs all the time because I just didn't want to do IVs and do needles and and uh, have liquid go places where it's not supposed to go at times. I've seen that happen too. Because you get bloating and things like that in your body. Well, if it's not done properly. The, you know, the liquid can go somewhere else, and then you have, like, a big old bubble in your arm or whatever, and it's just, you know. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it is dangerous, but I, I just hate when people really say that because not knowing, like, listen, it's it's hot out here. But at the same time, you got to get your work done because you play in stadiums that are open, that are not domes, you know what I mean? So it's just a fine line of understanding what's hard work and, and what's not needed, you know what I mean? So... But it, it depends on the coach. I think we've gotten better with that. I think they're implementing different rules to try to keep those things from happening. But, you know, the sun is not always your friend. <laughs> it really is for a football player. It, it I know. really isn't. I mean, the ideal football weather is not 90-degree weather by any means. No, As we get to the fall and, and into the winter, it's probably better. But so you've seen bubble arms. 
Bubble, bubble butts, arms. or is that something different? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's not from IVs. I, I didn't see none of them in the locker room. Come I've on, seen man. some from needles as well, but I think it's a different kind of needle. Oh, uh, gosh. <laughs> anyway, as we talk about heat and athletes, Ja, there's, there's a serious note I want to make make reference to also, and I don't need yeah. to bring it somber after levity, but um, but I do that stuff. <laughs> so, uh, it's, But something, there was a race... This weekend, the big race at Monmouth Park in in New Jersey by in Ocean County by the shore, and it's their Haskell. It's their big race, and it, it featured uh, Maximum Security, who crossed the finish yeah, line yeah, first in yeah. the Kentucky Derby, yeah. but was taken down by by a challenge, and he needed to win this race to get into the Breeders' Cup and qualify. So all the best three year olds in the country are racing a big purse, okay. and um, it was being televised by by NBC. And most of the race courses around the country shut down this weekend because of the danger to the horses and the heat wave that was all over the country. I know right. you were in Vegas it was hot. and you told me it was 110 and you didn't want to hot. leave the room and it was 100 degrees here in Philadelphia and to yeah. me that humidity always feels hotter but I, it's hard to compare 110 and 100 <laughs> right. and, that, and the way the strong sun is in Vegas yeah, it, yeah. it actually hurts to be yeah. out there in that. But for horses who are defenseless and they can't say anything. Right. Um, they do have rules of certain courses that at anything with a 105 index or higher, they shut it down right away. The index at Monmouth was somewhere around 107, 108, and they still ran the first three ready. races. Wow. Um, then the governor of New Jersey called up and said, hey, listen, we're funding you with like something around $10 million to keep horse racing alive, and if you want to stay open, you better shut down. And they wound up shutting down. NBC lost, left the broadcast, and they didn't run the races till later at, at about 6 o'clock at night, and they still ran them in about 105-degree heat index. Unfortunately, nothing happened. I say this in light of also the fact that at Santa Anita in California this year, there have been at least 30 horse deaths. Um, The sport of horse racing, which I've always loved because I grew up in it with my uncle was a big fan. He would take me to the track, and I've had friends who are horse owners. And it's a really can be exciting, thrilling sport. But there's a lot of animal rights lovers who feel that it's cruel. And I understand it because, you know, it can cut both ways. And, again, the the horses don't have a say in the matter, although it sure looks like they enjoy themselves. But who the heck knows? I mean, mean, it's, it's a life in the fields or running a horse track, but it's and they're treated well, but by the same right. token, they are pushed beyond their limits sometimes. Um, it, do you have any feelings on it? It, it really... I'm really bothered that they still ran those races at Monmouth Horse race, at horse Track. And I, I'm bothered also that Maximum Security, uh, knowing that they've got stud fees. I mean, this is a horse of the year. It's the best horse in, in the country at three-year-olds, right. which is their real value. I'm really shocked that they, they still ran him. him. And he but, did win the race, but I'm really shocked. He was the one that got that disqualified, right? He's the one who went right. wide at the Kentucky Derby. Right, got disqualified. got disqualified. That's why they ran the race, because they, yeah. they, they wanted that win. And um, But I, I hear we're... The animal lovers are saying it's cruelty. They don't have a say. But, you know, it's, is it cruelty to put your dog on the leash? You know, is it cruelty to have a cat? You know, it, like, I, I get it, but it's a sport. And these those horses are bred for that. Is it cruelty to have a horse carry a plow for the for the farmer? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you know, the, I, I completely get it. Now I'm saying, yes, it may be some aspects by a trainer or a breeder that may go off the, you know, off the edge and do some some bad things, or I understand that. But as far as a sport, I, I think that they're bred for that. That's what they're bred for. Just like you have champion Rockwallers, just like you have in the military, you have German Shepherds in the police force. You know, the, these dogs are are bred to to, you know, to do certain things. Some of them to become champions. Some of them to to you know for for working purposes. It's just. It's just how we've been. Um, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm a big animal lover. I have animals. I've always had animals. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think sometimes that there are people that, that step outside the line and do some cruel things to animals. But I, I don't see horse racing being that way. Um, now, if you're saying they shouldn't have let those horses run in the heat, yes, if that's the rules, they shouldn't have. I, I completely agree with you. Um, and just like they shouldn't have, that's why they were shut down till later. But, um but yeah, the, the the sun is it's not your friend. I mean, we we need the sun. Don't get me wrong, but I when, think it's hot. Be, I think man, the horses should strike, but the horses should strike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, but you know what? It's they can. I see the danger in that too, because you know they can get delirious. They can they can hurt somebody. They can cause damage. You know, even to themselves. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, they they have those the same symptoms that. Maybe not symptoms, but the same kind of concerns as humans with with the heat and heat stroke. And they're a big, large animal. Yeah, I'm just the bearer of bad news today also. Um, There was a tragedy over the weekend in another sport that you and I both love, but there's a lot of 
critics of that sport, there was a, a death of a boxer. A boxer, yeah, yeah I saw and, that. And a, the Russian boxer, Maxim Dadashev, who yeah. participated in the ESPN on Friday night, their, their second uh, to the main event, and a 140-pound International Boxing Federation eliminator. He was beaten by... Um, a guy named Sabriel, Subriol Matthias and mm -hmm. um, and had head injuries. They stopped the fight, and he died today, uh, two days later. Buddy McGurk, his trainer, did stop the fight. Um, there's going to be a lot of criticism here because he took a beating. He really took a beating, and um, it's, you know, how for how long do you let a beating take, and is the sport just too cruel in itself? And unfortunately, there have been deaths in boxing over time, head injury. You suffer, and it's not visible, but the swelling in the brain, uh, they, they did induce a coma and unfortunately it wasn't successful in saving his life just a tragedy a 28 year old fighter dying yeah it's uh very tragic um and that's that's another one of those those combat sports that are you know can cause serious damage that's why they have those rules in place and those judgment calls in place to try to keep that from happening but they they put it in the hands of his trainer who ultimately stopped the fight and i'm sure he's regretting he didn't stop it soon enough um and you yeah know, these, and these things happen in boxing and something then, he has to live with for the rest of his life yep and then the critics will jump in and and call for more uh I don't know, either stricter rules or, or even the, the entire elimination of boxing. I don't think we'll see the elimination, but it, it is it is troubling whenever anything like this happens. And, you know, I don't know what complete safeguards you can have because the object of boxing is to pummel the guy across from you. And right. and we do it too successfully. Sometimes it can have catastrophic effect. Yeah. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. In that sport and, and also in UFC with the four-ounce gloves, yep. you know, it's just those combat sports and, and – K one kickboxing is it's tough to to gauge it. I mean, they're they're violent they're violent sports. This guy was such a warrior that he was still fighting after taking this beating, right? Um, and uh, you know, ultimately, it cost him his life. And sometimes, being such a gamer is actually not to your own health betterment in that sport. For example, one of the things that uh, a lot of critics said of Muhammad Ali as to why he then suffered Parkinson's, and he was it was beset by Parkinson's at a fairly young age after his boxing career and suffered from the effects of it for the rest of his life. Um, you know, limited his speech and, and his movements were, you know, he, he always had to shake and stuff. And some of the reasons they think that he did was because he absorbed a punch so well. You know, it was one of the great traits of his as a boxer. Right, he could the punishment. He could do the rope-a-dope and he could take the beating and hang in there uh, against the Joe Frazier's or George Foreman's and things like that. But in the end, it was a detriment to his own health. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sometimes um, your your best asset, I guess, could do that, especially in sports, something that you that you use um, to, to, to get wins or to perfect your craft. So anyway, as we turn to something that has some happiness, but it's also another bittersweet thing, it was the enshrinement this past weekend in Cooperstown in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, a really terrific national museum for for our sport, for the uh, what they call the American pastime. It really collects all the history of baseball, which spans over 150 years in this country. Roy Halladay, who finished his career with the Phillies, pitching here in his last four years of a terrific now Hall of Fame career that spent the early part with the Toronto Blue Jays. He spent 2010 to 2013 with the Phillies, was enshrined in the Hall of Fame. And it's posthumously, Roy tragically died about 18 months ago when he crashed his own plane into the Gulf of Mexico. And his wife very valiantly gave the speech on his behalf, and it was moving and emotional um, that this man who was such a great baseball player, and he tragically died at 40 and didn't even live to see his own Hall of Fame induction. Ja, um, I loved Roy Holiday for a lot of reasons. I thought he was the best pitcher I saw over his era in pitching, and I got to be around him a little bit. I would never say I got to know Roy Holiday because he was really, really quiet, but I was around him a little bit, and the years he pitched for the Phillies um, overlap with my son Tucker's years as a bat boy, and Roy Holiday was particularly good to Roy to, to my son Tucker. He was very generous with a postseason tip, as well as just was such a professional and good and appreciative of, of him working for him, and he treated everyone around him really well. He was that kind of guy. And you know the kind of guys, and that's how you were always with your training staff and your equipment yeah. staff and stuff like that. Roy was this superstar who was just really special. But he had two young sons of his own. His oldest son is actually going to be going and attending Penn State University next year on a baseball scholarship. So oh, he had wow. sons, you know, similar age to my son and probably related to him someone. He was just really good to him. But he also gave me one of my greatest thrills, besides being live to watch the Phillies win the World Series, 
I got to see the only no hitter live Roy in my Holiday career. Roy was on that World Series team. Right? He did not. Uh, he, he came. Yeah, right he after, came in right? 2010. Um, they went to the World Series. They won the World Series in 2008. Went back in 2009. Lost. Then they brought Roy Holiday in from Toronto, gotcha. and they had their best record ever that year. Yeah. But unfortunately, <clears throat> fell in the playoffs and um, and lost to the Cardinals. Um, then in 2011, they lost to the Giants in 2010 in the National. League Championship Series. They went on the world, win the World Series. The next year, they lost to the Cardinals at home in Game 5 in the first round of the Divisional Series. Roy Holiday lost to his dear friend and former teammate Chris Carpenter, won nothing, and it was just a heartbreaking game. And that was the game in which uh, ended with Ryan Howard rupturing his Achilles on the last play, last at bat. Um, and it was such a symbolic end to the Phillies' season and to the Phillies' run of five division right, titles yeah. and their, and their <clears throat> prominence as a champion. And Ryan Howard's really stardom. It was all in one fell swoop. It just came down. It couldn't have been written any worse <laughs> from a Philly standpoint. As I watched that, I, it was really so sad. But in 2010, and also the Cardinals went on to win the World Series. So right, yeah. they lost in 2010 to the Giants won the World Series, 2011 to Cardinals the Cardinals. Won. Who knows how many World Series this team could have, should have, almost won. Yeah. But they got the one in 2008. Fortunately, they got that one. Um, but when Roy Holiday arrived in 2010, that's easy. Early in the season, he pitched a perfect game against the Florida Marlins, only the second in Phillies history in 1964 on Father's Day. Jim Bunning to pitch one, so it had been, you know, almost 50 years, I guess over 50 years, 50, yeah, coming on 50 years at that point, and um, it was 46. And then yep. in the playoffs against the Cincinnati Reds in the opening of the playoffs at Citizen Bank Park, he pitched only the second no hitter in postseason history in baseball. The other was 1956, Don Larson of the Yankees threw a perfect game in the World Series. And up until then, or before then, there was no other and none, none until Roy Holiday's in 2010. And I was live there. And I got to tell you, I, I can still get the chills of watching it because every time I went to a baseball game from the time I was a kid, I would say, maybe I'll see a no-hitter today. And you look up <laughs> and, the, and the first tick goes up on the board at some point, usually in the first inning, you say, oh, there goes a no-hitter. Right, yeah, yeah. One time I actually saw one until two outs in the ninth, but I never saw it go all the way. And Roy Holiday in the playoffs for the Phillies pitched one, and um, he—I'll I'll never forget it. He only walked one batter, so he was just one walk away from a perfect game. And that walk, he had—he had the batter one, two, one balls, two strikes, and he just missed with three pitches. And he—you could tell he had no hitter stuff. It was about midway through the game, and I looked at him, and I could tell he was so mad at himself for walking that batter, but he didn't let anybody else reach base the rest of the way. Right. And the Phillies wound up winning four nothing. It was really a classic performance, one of many in his career, but one of the two no hitters he threw that. Season through his career, and his wife had to accept for him. Um, ja, surrounding Roy Halladay is a little bit of uh, cloud cloudiness about how he came to pass. As I said, he crashes plane into the it, it's it's into the Gulf of Mexico where he was to, living with his family and his his young boys and, and wife. Um, and the the story came out recently through a Sports Illustrated story and a guy named Mike Selesky, who writes for the Enquirer for Philadelphia.com, also um, wrote a story. And there's some questions around him. He was found to have a lot of methamphetamines in his system. He had suffered from bouts of depression. Um, and there's even question as to why did he go on the plane? And he was he was endeavoring to do all these risky moves where he was bringing the plane down and then back up and he wasn't necessarily all that experienced as a pilot and he ultimately crashed and people had it on film because they were watching him and they were saying what is this nut doing um, and it's just such a sad way for a guy like Ray Holiday. Ray Holiday was described by guys like Chase Utley you know a guy himself who had an incredible career that recently came to an end as the best teammate he ever played with the hardest worker he ever played with this guy was so committed and so dedicated and I wonder how difficult the transition out of his career to his post-career was and what, what role depression may have played and even led him to making some bad choices on the day that he did perish. Yeah. And, uh, I wish there were more answers because not that we need to know specifically about Roy Halladay, but I think that these guys that fans worship and look up to so much that they should also realize that they're human beings yeah. and they're regular people. And I've said that before. You once laughed at me when I said, you know, they don't even look at you as human beings. But I think that a lot of people take for granted the life they live off the field. And they, they <clears throat> perform almost superhumanly on the field. Ray right. Holiday, you know, to, to be there as a pitcher, as hard as that position is, and to do it over the length of time he did it with the success and under the pressure, it's unbelievable. Yet there was a whole different side off the field yeah. that he might have struggled with. That nobody even probably knew about. I don't and think, that I don't nobody think they still... Did. Is not going to know about because it's not going to be released. I he mean, was a private guy. Yeah, and yeah. you'll you'll have the speculations and the autopsy and stuff like that, but we won't know exactly what was was what he was going through. And 
you know, we're just going to have people just putting out their opinions. So at this moment forward, it's just all opinions. Yeah, Mike Silski wrote this story that appeared right on the eve of him being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And he took a lot of criticism for that, that, um, you know, hey, why tarnish this event and why tarnish right. the legacy of Roy Halladay? And I understand the criticism, um, but I heard him kind of blasted for it. So I had not read the article. I had seen it, and I actually didn't want to. I didn't want to read it because I didn't want, in any way, my memories. As I told you, he gave me one of my greatest thrills as a baseball fan and in sports ever, which was the no hitter. Plus, he was really, really good to my son, and I just kind of wanted to leave him there and that kind of place in my memory and in the Hall of Fame induction. But when he was getting the criticism, I felt like I kind of owed it to myself to read the article, and I thought it was really, really fair. I thought it was really kind, and I thought the criticism was somewhat unfair because a journalist has a job to do yeah i mean but we all have to understand like yes a journalist has a job to do a journalist has a job to do but that journalist is just giving you his opinion how he sees it you know what i mean there may be some truth in it but there may be some things that are not not true at all it's just his opinion and how he writes it up um so yeah i I completely understand what you're saying but that's what that's what they live for that's what journalism is about it's about not giving you the information that you that you don't have any access to and making you see things in a different light or a different way or how they see it or how they project it onto you but um but yeah you know we'll never know it was like a couple couple weeks ago I read an article about a billionaire who helicopter crashed and huge billionaire helicopter crash and his daughter was in the helicopter with him and about seven people and it was and I'm thinking to myself is like why would you take a helicopter that distance across that body of water? And, you know, and you know, when you go over water, it's just so many <laughs> different elements that you deal with, the wind and, and all that stuff. I'm like, I don't know if that was safe for a helicopter, but you, who knows why he made that decision. Well, you know, John, there's things like that that I've seen. I'm like, it's almost suicide. It's like, all, who knows why it, he made that decision? It's, it's taking a risk that just makes no sense. I know he has a jet. Yeah, it makes no sense. Why would he take a helicopter? Some, some people, people feel some people feel immune also, and and will push the limits of life and and push them at times that don't make any sense. I mean, I've never exactly understood skydiving, stepping out of a perfectly good airplane, but some people like to live on the edge and and be dare takers. That one you describe with the helicopter doesn't make a whole lot of doesn't sense. Doesn't make a, and, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm reading this and I'm like, goodness gracious, like that, that just doesn't sound right to me. Like, why would you make that decision? And it's probably something he's done over and over again. I know it's probably not the first time, you know, but I'm just saying, like, but unfortunately, it's the last. And, and, I continue is, to make that. So, so I mean, we, we never know why people do the things they do or, or whatever it is. And you're, you're never always going to get the full story. John, anybody, any of our listeners who have any questions about that article by Sealski or the Sports Illustrated piece, I do urge them to read it. Because I, I read the article and I thought it was really, really fair. And I don't know Mike Sealski. And I wrote him a note. I actually dropped him a note. And he wrote right back to me. And, and I appreciate <laughs> it. He wrote, thank you so much for your, for your kind note. I appreciate not only your affection for journalism, because I really do appreciate journalism and newspaper writing. They got a tough job. And, and at this point, I'm one of the few who reads it. And that's why it cost me $3 a day to buy <laughs> daily news when it used to be about $0.10 cents at the yeah. start of my life. But, um, yeah, was, a, lot of, a lot of digital but stuff goes, now. You're right. You're a rare breed these days. But your willingness to make up your mind based on what someone actually wrote or said, not what you heard someone wrote or said. The holiday column was difficult to write for the very reasons you get at in your note. So many people thought so highly of him, your son included, that I had a sense that the piece would generate some intense backlash. But the more I thought about it, the more I understood that I couldn't write it any other way and be honest with myself and fair to him and his family. And and I appreciate that note from yeah. Mike Stielski. I, I don't think it was uh, when he went about writing it lightly. And him, him, he told you, him himself had internal struggles about what he was writing. Oh, I could tell it was a hard piece. You know, he and, spoke and, to childhood friends. He went down there. And, and that and, happens and, a lot in journalism. And, and, and I can see that it just from his his story and how he portrayed it, that these are people who will never be comfortable with what happened and they'll never right. have their, their their own questions answered. And it's right. one of the things yeah. of, of tragic deaths or or people taking their own life that it leaves so it leaves such a terrible emptiness and un- non-closure in the survivors. And um, and it's just really difficult. And, and I just urge, though, you know, people to recognize that everybody, celebrities, athletes, and, and the common man have struggles and have depressions and to try to be there and to be sympathetic and be supportive and know that, that, that terrible things happen and the people that are going through them to reach out and let people know when they're going through them because help is, is there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that there is it's a tiny bit that separates us all from each other. 
Now, you can put what we have and what we don't have, but as far as how we operate, you know, not a little bit how we think or how we do things, it's, it's, it's very little that separates us. But um, but I think you're, you're exactly right, man. We, and I always tell the children, don't be afraid to reach out. When I talk to children and talk to, you know, kids in schools, and I just tell them don't be afraid to reach out because – I think that that struggles come early on, and it's something that adults have problems with. So you can imagine how many children are, <clears throat> you know, ashamed or feel, you know, feel like they'll get picked on or they'll get talked about if they, if they don't handle things the right way. Well, you as an athlete, again, getting back to the macho world, it's hard for an athlete to admit weaknesses. It's isn't not it? hard. No, it's not hard. I mean, I think there's weaknesses in everything. I mean, if you if you leave a picture on the wall long enough, that screw or that nail is going to get weakened in that, you know, in, in that sheetrock. There's weaknesses in everything. It just happens in life as things go on, just like water. Water corrodes and weak, weakens everything, dirt, gravel. So, yes, you, you can be strong and also have a sense about you to say, hey, I'm not God or I don't have the, the answer to everything. You know what I'm saying? But there are some thick-minded people that say, I, I know it all. Well, I'm glad that clubs have become more enlightened as we've gotten into the 2019s, into the 20s now. To, and, and a lot of them do you say have, clubs have, like sports teams. It's sports teams yeah. that have mental health people as part of their, <clears throat> you know, their their staff, and that have. It was neglected for a long it, time. It, it was, and it was almost looked down upon. And as an athlete, athletes would be scared to share those things <laughs> as perceived yeah. weakness, as that the club would would look disfavorably upon. Yeah, them you're and right. Not treat them fairly, and they still will. And they that's still what I say. will. So, that's what, yeah. so it is a of little course. bit scary to come forward. No, yeah, of course they still will. You'll still there. There are still businesses, owners, and 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 a whole lot of different industries that may not want to take on somebody else's deficiencies or issues. Um, I think that will always happen. But you know them recognizing and understanding that hey, we need somebody in house to maybe help facilitate this is is one thing. You know, at least you're offering the assistance. But, uh, but yeah, I think there's definitely discrimination towards it. All right. A couple things as we come to our close after another very rapidly f- flowing hour, and we could go on for hours every time. <laughs> come join us next week. But Tyreek Hill, we've talked about him, the star receiver for the uh, Kansas City <clears throat> Chiefs. Yep. Um, he has had this – the – legal things circulating around him and the specter and accusations of having broken his three-year-old son's arms, uh, arm and some things about a potential assault against his fiancée and when she was pregnant and things that happened when he was in college. Anyhow, he, the district attorney in the Kansas City area decided not to prosecute him and what they have, had seen and what they had gathered in evidence. And the National Football League, in a surprise decision to me, Jerry, chose not to suspend him. Right. Um, right. We have talked about how due process doesn't always apply in sports and the commissioner can give punishment even when the court of law doesn't. I mean, we saw it with Odubel Herrera where charges weren't pursued, yet he got suspended for the rest of the year by Major League Baseball. In, in the NFL, which has been tougher than any other sports in these things, chose not to suspend. Um, there was a tape of Tyreek Hill with his, his now I think ex-fiance, where she's trying to get him to admit to what he, to having assaulted his child and he denied it the whole way and even to even claim that she had doctored up this story in the past that caused him caused him some trouble. Um, I don't know what other evidence they found, but I was I don't know what happened or what didn't happen. You know, I don't know about the allegations. But for me, the the good part was that the NFL investigated just didn't automatically find a guy guilty because I've been looking at like it doesn't matter what happens with these guys, it's not fair in the process. And yeah. clearly, they shockingly found in favor of the player. Yes, something happened because there was a child who was injured, so you know something happened. But accidents happen. Accidents, it doesn't accidents have to be do happen. I, I don't. I don't know. You know, accidents happen. You're right. A child can children fall and get break hurt his all the time. Yeah, I completely agree with you. If Tyreek had anything to do with <clears> it, then he deserved harsh punishment. My my thing is, I don't understand where did the story come out that said that he had something to do with it. If it turns out that he hadn't, like, how did that even because it came come up? from his fiancee? And so she needs to come forward and say this is what happened. Well, I don't know. I mean, they investigated and, and found that 
they they didn't obviously think there was enough to suspend him. So he'll be joining the Kansas City Chiefs for training. Yeah, he's not suspended for sure. And and all that stuff. So it's something happened, but I don't think the child is with neither parent right now. That if I'm not mistaken. That I don't know. But normally there's this rush to judgment and harsh penalty no matter what once charges come. Right. And in this case, it was it went a little against I think that. that there are some signs of abuse there. I just don't know exactly you know, what it is and, and what they found in their investigation. But I think there's the signs of abuse not just on the child but also against her. Well, they'd had in the past, and he had pled guilty to some stuff or admitted to some stuff a long time ago, and that's why he faced some harsh scrutiny coming into the league. So, but but in this tape, he sort of disavowed any connection and act like he had been wrong through the, throughout. I'm just look. I want the NFL to come down hard if things like that occur. I really do. I want them to come down hard on domestic violence, hard on any woman, man putting his hand on a woman. I think that they will, and they. I think they are, and they will. I think, in and this, they have, and they recently. have. In this instance, he just did, it wasn't. You, you can't punish somebody for something that you can't bring out to light or discover. And yep. I think that's where they that's where they are with that. And in the past, I've been concerned that they do punish when they don't. And clearly they showed that they won't. And, and I think it was a good day for the players in general. Yeah, but there was some audio that came out that wasn't good. Well, um, they found enough that if they, if they felt that there was something there, they would have suspended him. They did not want to. No, let, they didn't. Susp- yeah, the team didn't suspend him. Well, the it, NFL. Right, or the NFL, but it was something there, audio-wise, I guess, language towards her or something Enough like that. Enough to create the inference it yeah. had to be investigated, right. had to be explored criminally. But at the end, they decided not to prosecute the, the, in the law enforcement realm, and the NFL decided not to suspend. So yeah. Tyreek Hill will be on the field, and you can draft him for your fantasies, fantasy teams coming up. John, just a, a quick gambling note. Um, we have seen in this past year the rise of gambling in other jurisdictions besides Nevada after the successful challenge to the Supreme Court brought by New Jersey over several years that opened it up. We've got the casinos now all have it around here in in both Philadelphia and down in Atlantic City in their sports books and online. You could do it in New Jersey. Jersey, Draft Kings and um, FanDuel. But Yesterday marked the day that you can now do it in Pennsylvania as well as New Jersey. And uh, last month in New online, Jersey, you mean you can do it online now. In New Jersey now? passed Nevada last week or last month rather in sports gambling, which is incredible. Within the first year, and we're at the tip of the iceberg in New Jersey. And now Pennsylvania, you can do it online in addition to going to the Parks Casino and right, the Sugar yeah. House and oh, the what formerly OTBs and stuff. So we are still at the tip of the iceberg, and we're going to talk more gambling as we go on. Obviously, everyone's always paying attention to betting lines and things like that, but. It's yep. a really increasing thing in sports. And now the leagues have embraced it now that it's legal and they're partnering with it. And um, we're just going to see more and more of it of it filter down. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think uh, the East Coast is, has, has, uh, haven't been able to indulge as much as, as they want to legally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and you just think about population-wise, I think that there's more people <clears throat> in the tri-state area than it is in Vegas for sure. Um so, yeah, so you just have the, sh- the sheer numbers of people that aren't able to travel to Vegas to put that bet in that can now do it, as small as it is. So, uh, so yeah, I think you're going to see those numbers continue to climb. Everyone talks gambling all the time, betting lines, and you had to do it illegally up in this area right. up until the last year. And um, the proliferation of it is just booming. Yeah, and it's now going everyone's to continue. got easy access to it. It's, it's a, going to continue. a touch away on your phone in an app. So uh, if, 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 New, if, New, if New York ever gets, <laughs> it's going to happen everywhere. Exactly, it's, because it's, you're foolish not to. It's it's an it's, enormous stream of tax revenue. So it's a lot of just revenue. like as marijuana has proliferated right. through the country and more and more jurisdictions. Tons of revenue. That and vote Tons that of revenue. Um, all right. Last thing as we as we close up our Colton's chance. I'm going to turn behind the glass to Taylor because he's been quiet over there listening to us, probably falling asleep. Give us a date, Taylor. What you got? Give us a date. Our Colton's champion, just for our listeners who haven't heard, uh, he'll give me a year. I'll give him the champions from that year and maybe the president they visited if they went to the White House. Make it interesting. Uh, 2005. Okay. 2005. Not going too far back in time. Okay. Um, And... I was alive in 2005, <laughs> which, which actually, when you give me 1962, I was alive. I'm going to see if anyway. I can do the football one. All right. Well, let's start with baseball. The World Series champs in 2005 were from Chicago, the Chicago White Sox. White Sox. I know the football one. In basketball, it would have been the San Antonio Spurs, who just hired Tim Duncan as an assistant coach. Saw that. Um, In the NCAA, it would have been the North Carolina Tar Heels. And just stop me if I'm wrong on any of these things. In football, it would have been, I got it. It would have been Super Bowl 40. I think it was New England. They did. 
it was actually not Super Bowl Forty. Would have been see the way it works. New England that was won played the Super in two thousand six. New England, New England won right. the Super so Bowl. So the one before that, February two thousand five. It was that's before the that. season right. of Super Bowl so thirty nine. The one before that. So, so before the Eagles, New England in nineteen four the fortieth, which is two thousand five. The fortieth right. season is actually the Pittsburgh Steelers. February two thousand five. Yeah. It, well, no, February two thousand six is actually the Super Bowl for the two thousand five season. However, right. we want to get, and that's the Pittsburgh Steelers. February 2005, the Super Bowl for, for Super Bowl 39 for the 2004 season is the New England Patriots. And that's just the way it goes. <laughs> and we can split that, but I, I, but I know who they are. It's just whether we qualify, as, which is 2005 and the 2000. Just like your Super Bowl. Of no, I know. Super, February, Super Bowl 44. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was considered the 2009 Nine. season. Yeah, yeah. Even though it was played, played in 2010. 2010. So right. the 2005 season would have been Super Bowl 40. And that was the Pittsburgh Steelers. Gotcha. Okay. Um, who am I left with? Who did I NHL. Do? Hockey. NHL. Uh, wow, that's a really good one Taylor came up with. Because in 2005, there was no Stanley Cup. It was the NHL lockout. There was no season that year. That's correct. Taylor, so, I was going to say that Taylor know that. And if you went to the White House in 2005, it would have been George W. Bush to shake your hand. Anyway, did I get them all? What are you showing me? Gotcha. What? You got what I'm saying? Yes. Okay, yes. you understand. So anyway, listen, I, I think I hit him all right, Taylor? All right. He's yeah, giving, he got him all. giving me not. I didn't get your PSAC champ. Anyway, um, <laughs> we have covered so much Terry P-Sack from champ. rock and roll to boxing to horse racing to the champions of 2005. Thanks for listening to us. Taylor is behind the glass doing a great job for us. My partner, the future Hall of Famer, Jerry Evans. Peace. I'm Gerald Cole, your host saying thanks for listening. Court's adjourned.